Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, March 27th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or on inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download or streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. A few weeks back, the National Research Council released two reports on geoengineering. And by geoengineering, I mean any of these large-scale attempts to alter Earth's natural systems, largely to uh, to reduce the impacts of climate change. And those reports were focused on carbon sequestration and albedo modification, which means changing the re- reflectivity of the Earth uh, Earth's surface to send more sunlight back out to space. These were highly anticipated. This is the first; these were the first reports on geoengineering in a number of years, uh, and it was well reported in the media. And I was at a science conference where these reports were debuted, and I was surprised by one particular thing: the conference was being protested by people uh, who largely didn't want to see a discussion of geoengineering happening. It was a small group; it was only about ten people, but it was the first time I'd been to a science conference that was protested. Uh, so I was curious to talk to somebody about the history of geoengineering, why there's so much rancor about it. Uh, so I tracked down one of the author, um, the authors of the report, Ken Caldera, who's a climate scientist at Stanford University, uh, to really get a historical perspective on geoengineering, what needs to be studied, what we need to do to ad- adapt to the forthcoming onslaught of climate change, and really just how do we move forward the discussion in a meaningful way. Uh, Ken is really famous uh, for being one of the, those uh, scientists that coined the term ocean acidification. And we had a ranging conversation about geoengineering, but he left me with a really surprising statement. Let's take a listen. I've actually come to think that the most important thing is to help research that will help people to make better decisions. I don't, I mean, Kahneman had this book, Thinking Fast and Slow. There's other work that shows how irrational people are in their decision making. And, uh, you know, and really, I think there's already enough science to know what we need to do. We need to transform our energy systems into systems that don't keep dumping their CO2 into the atmosphere. And I mean, I like the science. I want to do the science. It's fun. It's interesting. It's important. But there's already enough science to know what we need to do, and we're not doing it. Wow, he is not going to make some friends <laughs> with that particular I statement. I don't think so either. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it is kind of amazing that 
it sounds like science fiction to sort of essentially change something so massive about the earth that we can affect climate change, you know, in an, in a kind of instant, right? But I, I also think that if you talk to someone in the 1950s and you ask them about, you know, NASA's mission to put a man on the moon, I think they'd also say, look, that sounds completely outrageous. So, you know, maybe it is time to start thinking about these large-scale projects more seriously. The stuff that comes to mind about why I think it's fiction and not even science fiction is largely because of the amount of collaboration it would take to actually institute some geoengineering ideas into practice. When we send a man to the moon, we could do it as a nation state. When you talk about putting particles up into the atmosphere to potentially block sunlight, that affects everyone. I would think you would need a consensus of nations to do that. Well, but we do things all the time that affect the world that don't <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that don't go through the UN. You know, I mean, I think I think I think you're right that it, you know to get a consensus would be really hard. But I also think that there is probably enough interest uh, in certain countries. You know, like for example, I'm just thinking about. China, where climate change could have a massive effect, you know, or will have a massive effect, is already having a massive effect. And if they decided to take matters into their own hands and kind of fix the problem for themselves, you know, it's we're coming to a point in time when this is almost a possibility. I agree. There's places where the ramifications of climate change are happening now. And that came up in our conversation with Cam. I mean, the Maldives is going to not be a place anymore if sea level rise occurs at the rate they're saying. So within 20 years, that entire nation, it will be gone. But what I'm really left with, this is the first time uh, since I've come onto the show in many, in just in many years overall, that I can recall a scientist saying like, science is pretty settled here. We need to move on to action-oriented research. And I'm still, it, it's still weeks later after we conducted the interview that I'm left um, sort of uh, shocked and surprised by that statement. Uh, and it really resonated how uh, how much the scientists think, we don't really need to do a ton more work here. Uh, we need to actually do something urgently on the action side. Well, that'll be our interview for today. But before we get to it, let's talk about a couple of things that have hit the headlines. So one study caught my attention uh, this week. It's, uh, it concerns my favorite brain region. So if you're a listener to the show, you might know that that's the hippocampus. It's a part of your brain that turns short-term memories into new long-term memories, essentially. It does a lot of things. It's also involved in your ability to navigate through space and so forth. Um, and I don't mean space like, you know, outer space. <laughs> your no. ability to find your car in a parking lot. Um, but there is also some evidence that the hippocampus is involved in learning, the kind of learning especially, that is consolidated or helped by sleeping. So you might have heard the 10,000 hours rule. Does that sound familiar to oh, you? Oh, yeah. The, that's how long it takes somebody to become proficient and uh, being an expert in any field. In any field. Exactly. So this was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, but originated in a study by Anders Ericsson. And of course, there's some controversy concerning about the actual number. And, you know, I don't want to get into that part of the discussion. But one of the things that um, Ericsson reported in his 93 paper that doesn't get as much attention is that when he compared the sort of daily activities of professional violinists with their less, you know, less, less talented or less um, skilled counterparts, one of the big differences was that the professional violinists actually took a nap most afternoons. And this is a graph I put up for my students at the Conservatory of Music all the time, because there's such a tendency these days to overpractice. Oh, it's better to spend 12 hours in the practice room, you know, than to spend six hours in the morning or four hours in the morning and then take a nap in the afternoon, right? This seems so counterintuitive. Sounds counterintuitive. And yet, you know, we know now there's a lot of good evidence that you really can't, there's diminishing returns if you practice for more than, say, four hours in a day, let alone four hours at a time. But it's always tough to control a sleep study. So, you know, most sleep studies, what they do is they have people learn something or study something, and then they have to either take a nap or do something else, right? So because what are you going to compare the control group? You still have to have the amount of time elapse, the same amount of time elapse. Otherwise, you can't just say, oh, you know, if you don't take a nap, you perform one way or another, you have to control for the amount of time, because of course, forgetting is a function of time. Um, so there are different ways to do this. In this particular study, uh, the control was watching a DVD. So 
pretty relaxing. You could argue that, you know, there's not a lot of effort that it takes to watch a DVD. Um, and so Depends you had, on the DVD. <laughs> does depend on the DVD. But so essentially they had people learn word pairs. So new associations, like one example is milk taxi. They had to remember that those two words were associated. Um, and then you could either take, you know, one, the, the experimental group took a 90-minute nap. But, you know, they had 90 minutes, so they might have napped for, you know, 45 to an hour uh, of that. And then the control group watched a DVD for the same amount of time. And then it turns out that in terms of the items, remembering whether milk or taxi were actually on the test, that was no different between the control group and the experimental group. But the ability to remember the associations, that is that milk was paired with taxi, did not diminish in the nap group, but it did diminish in the control group. So the control group was less able to remember those, those associations after watching a DVD than the nap group who maintained the same level of performance. So should we try an experiment next month where you stay up right before we record and uh, I'll just nap? <laughs> perhaps, uh, based on listener feedback, perhaps nap through the entire recording of this podcast? Well, I feel like my life for the last year has been one big sleep study, given that you know, <laughs> it's my baby that dictates how much I sleep. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is that they also correlated the type of sleep uh, sort of electrical activity in the brain, sleep-related electrical activity, um, and, they, and they were able to show that there's a particular signature of learning that they could see in the nappers versus the people who watch the DVD. And these are called sleep spindles, for those of you that are interested. And, and this is in slow-wave sleep. So it's not in the sleep during which you you know, tend to dream. Um, but uh, it's in the sort of deepest stage of sleep. So the important thing is, you know, the nap has to be long enough that you can actually get into this slow wave sleep, which takes a little bit of time. It's not the, you know, the first thing that happens when you close your eyes. Um, but there is one caveat that I want to make, which this study cannot answer yet. And that is, and a lot of times when we see these effects of naps on, you know, learning retention or learning and memory, the effects sometimes wash away if the experiment is run for more than 24 hours, because by the time you get to the 24-hour period, the control group has had a chance to go into slow-wave sleep and consolidate the information. So in some ways, the advice I give my students is like, look, if you need to learn something, you need to consolidate the information, and you're going to either perform or rehearse again in the evening, a nap is a really good idea. But, you know, if, if it's going to come at a cost of your sleep overall, you know, there might not be as much of a benefit if, you know, you have to actually, t you know, tuck into your eight hours of sleep a night. This harkens back to our conversation with Matt Walker last month, because he essentially said the same thing, that you need to get an adequate amount of sleep, but not necessarily too much. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I do also, you know, think that we're, I hope we are coming into a culture shift where we're going to start seeing naps as being a productive part of your day rather just as something that only lazy people do. <laughs> well, the story that caught my eye this week is uh, uh, I want to take you back to your first year of graduate school. And do you remember this mantra, publish or perish? <laughs> of course. Perish. Yeah. In fact, in my at, at UCLA, where I got my PhD, you didn't even have to necessarily write a dissertation. They told us on the first day that you could essentially staple three published papers together and they'd give you a degree. <laughs> so maybe perish was the mantra there. The, uh, there was a new study that came out that talked about something called attention decay in science. Really what they're emphasizing is we might publish too much stuff in science because no one has the time to actually read everything that's published. And to give you an idea of how much is being published, so in 1960, if you look across a number of scientific journals, there is about 100,000 articles published in a year. In 2000, do you want to hazard a guess on how many? Oh, man, I would think at least 10 times that number. Almost exactly 10 <laughs> times that. Uh, it was about a million papers in 2000. And what the the study noted is that there has been exponential growth and how many papers are being published. And what they really looked at is looking across different fields of so physics, biology, whatnot. They looked at, at citations of papers over time. And what they noted is that papers were essentially popular, according to citations, for about two to three years. And then they had this massive decay in how many times they were cited. You could attribute that, that the work is no longer relevant after a few years, but two to three years isn't that long of a period of time. So really what they're saying is that a paper older than a couple of years old just doesn't get found. You know, it's amazing that they've found this. You know, That's sort of something that you get the feel for when you're in 
science or in academia because a lot of times the way people find out about papers is by going to conferences and seeing people talk about it. And, you know, you're not going to present a paper that was published two to three years ago. You're going to be presenting what you're working on right now. So to me, I always thought it was interesting how there is this kind of PR component to being an academic. You have to go out and you have to go to the conferences and you have to present your stuff or else like people don't know about it. There was a lot of articles written about this study. And one thing that came up that I, I caught my eye was the notion of a lot of open access journals right now put the cost of publishing on the author. So it costs like in something like PLOS, it costs, you know, a little over $1,000 for an author to publish in, in one of the journals. So all of a sudden, they their money controls the output uh, of papers. So if, you, if they're on like a CV building bend, they can just spend more money to generate more papers which may not be super valuable to the entire enterprise, which was an interesting thought. I'm not necessarily backing that thought, but it was it was definitely provocative. Um, but what I really come back to as the importance of what this paper is really saying is we have crappy tools for fi- for scientists to search through uh, search through the literature and find what they need. I mean, I think that's exactly right. You know, the databases still seem like they've changed very little given how much the sort of publishing of science has changed in the last couple of decades. So those certainly have to come on board. But, you know, I do agree that we might want to rethink this kind of just quantity of publication model as a measure of someone's academic achievement. Um, And I know that there are, of course, some institutions that really do value quality over quantity. um, But you know, I, I think more and more we're going to have to turn into that direction. And I hope what doesn't get lost is, you know, all the really good papers that thus far have been published that, you know, are just, you know, just drops in the in the ocean now. Hey, I hope the saying, as the saying goes, this doesn't apply to science, but I hope 90% of everything isn't crap when it comes to this. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah, I hope so too. And <laughs> here's one more paper saying that there's just too many papers. <laughs> Okay, with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Ken Caldera. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick from one of their 150,000 plus titles. A couple of my favorites, Spring Chickens, Trying to Stay Young Forever or Die Trying by last week's guest Bill Gifford. Another great option, The Martian by Andy Weir, which was my favorite book of 2014 and soon to be a motion picture starting, starring Matt Damon, or What Technology Wants by former guest Kevin Kelly. Or you could just start catching up on Game of Thrones before the new season starts. Whichever book you choose, you can download it for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the series Origins of the Human Mind. In this series, it's available on either video or audio. Professor Stephen P. Hinshaw of the University of California, Berkeley, provides a guide to the latest information and viewpoints on what neurobiologists, psychologists, and other scientists know about the human mind. Across 24 30-minute episodes, topics covered include how the human brain works, the development of the mind from infancy through adulthood, and topics from abnormal psychology such as psychosis, schizophrenia, and mood disorders, and predictions of the future of human minds. Now, this special offer of 80% off Origins of the Human Mind is only valid until April 15th. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Ken Caldera, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Good to be here. So I want to start with this notion of this big geoengineering report that's making its way through press and media right now. There was a, a huge National Research Council report uh, that really focused on two methods to mitigate uh, a global climate change through different methods. And I was wondering if you could tell us the basics about this re- report and uh, so we can get into some of the findings. First of all, we wrote two separate reports. One of them was on the idea of carbon dioxide removal, removing carbon dioxide that's already been released to the atmosphere. 
And the other report was more controversial, and it was the, about this idea of reflecting sunlight to cool the earth. The sun heats up the earth, and so if you reflect some sunlight away, that should cool the earth back down. And I want to back up a second. This whole notion of geoengineering, this term sort of brings up uh, all sorts of images, like science fiction style images in my mind. Uh, when you say geoengineering, what, do you, what is it that you're really talking about? Geoengineering is often used to refer to techniques to try to address the climate change issue that involve manipulating earth system functions at large scale to somehow try to manipulate natural systems to to do things that humans want them to do. And there's lots of examples from our historical past in the last hundred years of efforts that have been termed geoengineering, like there was a army effort to seed a hurricane in the Atlantic. There was, I think there was a millionaire that tried to seed the ocean with iron filings. Like what is, is this just a huge catch-all for a lot of different things or is it mean something different to the scientific community now? No, it's really a basket of disparate things that people have proposed. I mean, people have talked about flooding the Sahara and or the Russians or the Soviets at the time tried to re think about reversing the rivers that were flowing north and make them flow south. And so it's generally a basket term for a wide range of, uh, of proposals to manipulate earth systems at huge scale and, and usually having to do with climate, but not always. But, uh, and people have argued back and forth about what words would be better to use or worse to use. And I guess the words to me aren't so important and we should just talk about the proposals. So what were the proposals here when it came to – let's talk about the the more controversial one, as you said, the Albedo, uh, the Albedo report about changing the reflectivity of the Earth. In 1991, there was a huge volcano known as Mount Pinatubo and it threw a bunch of material – including sulfur, into the stratosphere, which is the high part of the atmosphere above where planes fly. And this layer of small particles or aerosols reflected about 2% of the incoming sunlight back to space. And in 1992, the Earth was cooler than in 1991. And, it, and had that layer stayed up there, it would have kept on cooling. And this has happened after several big eruptions over the last half century. And so it's pretty well established that if you throw a bunch of small particles into the stratosphere, it will reflect sunlight to space and the Earth will cool. And so, and it turns out that the amount of stuff is not that much. And if you had just one fire hose worth of material constantly spraying into the stratosphere, that would be enough to offset all of the global warming anticipated for the rest of this century. Well, that sounds great. Let's just do that. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the it problems. It sounds easy. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, almost the problem is that it is easy, and but it's easy and dangerous. The uh, and one of the issues is we. I actually got into this uh, at a meeting in 1998. And there was uh, a guy there named Lowell Wood, who was Edward Teller's right-hand man. And Edward Teller was the uh, known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. And and just to go back with a little history, uh, you know, when after we blew up the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was this idea that oh well, atomic weapons were usable. And Edward Teller thought, oh, well, we can never make a treaty to not use atomic bombs now that they've been, been used. And so I don't trust people to behave properly. And so I want to make a weapon called the super. And, and it was going to be a bomb. It was that, actually called the super? Super, yeah. And the idea was it was the hydrogen bomb. And it was supposed to be the bomb that was so terrible that people would be afraid to ever engage in war again. And so at Livermore Lab, about an hour away from where we are now, they developed the hydrogen bomb. And, and and Edward Teller took credit for preventing nuclear war. And he said, see, I made the hydrogen bomb and we didn't have a nuclear war. And so when the 1980s rolled around and Reagan was there, then the idea that we had all these multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles and all this stuff, and they got afraid, you know, people started thinking first strike war might happen. And Edward Teller said, 
oh, well, let's have the um, Star Wars missile defense system and we'll have lasers in space and shoot these things down. And because we don't trust people not to have a nuclear war, but we can make this technology solve the problem. And so in the late 1980s, Teller uh, started thinking about, well, how are we going to deal with climate if it gets too warm or even if we went into an ice age again, how would we stop it? And so they started designing these systems to control Earth's climate. And again, he thought, oh, we don't, we can't trust social systems and people to solve our problems, but we can create technologies that solve our problems. And so in 1998, I was at a meeting, and his uh, protege, Lowell Wood, was there, and we, the the meeting was about transforming energy systems to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. A and Lowell, you know, said, "Well, you know, we could just very cheaply put some particles into the stratosphere, and and the job will be done, and and you know, no problem. We don't have to worry about all this social change that would be required in transforming our energy system." And I thought, oh, this sounds ludicrous. And I, the guy who worked in the office next door to me, which I happened to be working at Lawrence Livermore Lab at the same time, but that has like 7,000 scientists and Lowell Wood was in the sort of super secret dark regions and I was in this energy and environment division with no security clearance. So it was a different – we were in the same place, but we didn't cross paths. But anyway, so the guy next door to me, he was running atmospheric climate models. So I said, well, look – you know, the sun is mostly in, in, it's in the daytime, not at night. It's more near, more near the equator than at the North Pole. And, and so there's, uh, you know, there's more in the summer than the winter, whereas greenhouse gases kind of work more or less uniformly all over day and night, winter, summer, North Pole, equator. And so there's no way that turning down the sun will compensate for greenhouse gases on a regional and seasonal basis, even if it did it on global average. And so we ran a climate model, and much to our surprise, it worked really well. And our original goal was to show that it wouldn't, you know, that it was a crazy idea and wouldn't work. And the reason it worked well had to do with sea ice, uh, and that uh, right now, as you know, the sea ice is melting back very rapidly, faster than what most models predict. And it turns out that the sea ice is this white thing that reflects lots of sunlight. And, and so if the sea ice melts back, you, it's the, you lose the, the white. You lose, lose the white and the sun starts getting absorbed by the ocean. And then also the sea ice acts as an insulator. So in the wintertime, heat runs out of this ocean, warming up and making you know places like England relatively mild. And then in the summer, the heat goes back in. And so it turns out that if you just can cool the earth enough and have the sea ice come back to where it was naturally, that, that does a pretty good job of fixing up the climate of the planet. And, and so then but so then people said, oh, yeah, yeah, but plants are going to be, you know, you're reflecting sunlight. Plants are going to be bad. It'll affect photosynthesis. Yeah, It'll affect right, because plants need light plant. And so, so, so then, uh, then the next thing we did, oh, we did a model that had a representation of the land biosphere. And the land biosphere grew much more happily in the model with high CO2 levels and a little bit less sunlight than it did, uh, you know, in the natural pre-industrial world. And that was because CO2 acts as a kind of fertilizer for plants. Or another way of thinking about it is that the CO2 uh, anyway allows the plants to use water more efficiently and so the plants grew better. And so much to our surprise, the plants were doing good. And so again, we tried to show that, oh, this would be damaging to the earth to do this, and the model said it would work. And also after Mount Pinatubo, there's evidence that forests actually grew better because – or grew more anyway. I don't know if it was better because this, some of the sunlight went through the particles in the stratosphere and came down diffusely. And even though the, the top leaves got 2% less sunlight – the leaves deeper in the canopy got more more light, and the plant, and there was, so there was more plant growth after Mount Pinatubo. And so, again, it's sort of a history that each time we tried to show that the solar geoengineering wouldn't work, the models kind of said it would work. And so now, you know, it's like 15 years later after the first publication of that, and we're kind of saying, well, all the models say this will work just fine, but don't do it. Don't do it. It's risky. It's dangerous. 
And so it's a funny situation that I feel like I'm in because all our sort of most of our published results show that it would actually work quite well. But personally, I think it would be a crazy thing to do. So why do you disagree with the published results personally? So, I mean, these are the same models that say that you can avoid climate damage by reducing emissions, right? And so one question is, well, why would I trust the models when the model says reduce emissions, but not trust the model when the model says to put particles in the stratosphere? And I think I have a basic feeling that the the Earth system is much more complicated than the climate models, regardless of how complicated the models are. And when something says you can reduce risk by not interfering with the system, I'm much more ready to trust that result than when the same model says you can reduce risk by interfering even more dramatically in the system. I'm very surprised to hear this. I I guess I was expecting... uh in talking to a climate scientist to have the climate models almost be adhered to in a certain religious way that the like this has been the evidentiary basis for so much uh, of the conclusions so to say that like there's some distrust there i'm surprised and i was wondering if you can like sort of contrast this notion of your own sort of personal hunch and, and conjecture about like how complicated the earth system is and where we are with with our models right now and, and i want to qualify and I'd say like i don't know if i don't this doesn't undermine any of our findings on on co2 affecting climate either no i mean it's uh, my feeling about models is the main purpose of models is to help you think and the actual numerical result from the model, it's important, but it's not the most important thing. And, and and so let's say I run a climate model and it produces some kind of result that I don't expect. I mean, let's say the first time we did the solar geoengineering thing and, and it canceled, largely canceled the effects of increased CO2, I don't trust that result until I have an understanding of it. And that understanding is largely ends up being in the form of a narrative, right? So I tell a story about sea ice reflecting sunlight and insulating the ocean from the atmosphere. And it's really that the quantitative model leads me to a narrative story that I believe. And, and, and so I, 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 I don't really look at the – even though it's all this mathematics and everything and physics behind it, Ultimately, I think the output of the model that I trust is a narrative story that I believe. And it's not a story at in its current state that you believe it. No, I believe, I mean, the story that greenhouse gas emissions trap infrared radiation and cause the planet to heat, I believe. The, the story that, that particles in the stratosphere reflect sunlight away from the earth and cool the earth, I believe. I, I actually think I mean, one of the questions is there's different kinds of risk. Mm -hmm. There's environmental risk, and there's also the socio-political risk. And I think one thing everybody can agree on, that if we don't transform our energy system into one that doesn't rely on using the sky as a waste dump, greenhouse gases will continue accumulating in the atmosphere. And to offset that with a sort of stratospheric particle layer, you'd have to kind of keep cranking up that amount of material in the stratosphere. And that end game of, you know, an atmosphere that's completely full of greenhouse gases and the stratosphere that has a thick haze of aerosols, I mean, that just sounds like an ugly outcome that has to lead to a bad end. And so, uh, uh, I, but I, I think it's really important to study this stuff, but I don't – I hope we don't get in a situation where it seems less risky to deploy these things than not deploy them. In a way, what I'm what I'm hearing is um, a concern about where geoengineering is right now is that it's um, it's a panacea in a way. It doesn't require us to to think more deeply about our own energy systems and our, and our waste. Do you think that's true? I mean, there are some people, but I don't really think that many, but there's some people who see solar geoengineering as an alternative to emissions reduction. But I think people who think through the problem realize that that's not really going to work. Um, but on the other hand, 
if you look at climate model projections for business as usual emission scenarios, which we've been on that trajectory for some time now, by the end of the century, uh, throughout the tropics, each summer will be hotter, or most summers will be hotter than the hottest summer on record. And right now, when there's a real hot, extreme hot summer in the tropics, there's typically crop failures. And there's the potential for widespread crop failures throughout the tropics. And and if, uh, you know, it's possible there could be widespread famines with millions of people dying. I don't want to say that this is the likely outcome, but it's at least a possibility. And, you know, there's really only one way known to cool the planet on a politically relevant timescale, that the to convert an energy system takes decades and then there's lags in the climate system. So really, even if we started a serious energy system transition, you see most of the effect of that showing up in the second half of the century. And so if if there's really some crisis and people say, look, we need things to cool off now, and we look around at volcanoes and we know, hey, look, they do it, and it's within our technical means to do that, and if there are hundreds of millions of people on the edge of starvation and you think they could eat next year if they manage to live that long, they, if you do this, the pressure to deploy it could in the future become really intense. And so I think it's worth understanding it now and that at some point in the, in the future, it could make sense to do. I hope we don't get to that state, but it's possible. You've been a long-term advocate of of a zero-emission policy which sometimes feels not feasible in our current culture. And I wonder why you advocate zero emissions in, in the climate that we have. Yeah, this first came up. I was doing a, a briefing for some congressmen in the Capitol building on ocean acidification, which is something else that I study. And uh, one of the congressmen asked me, okay, what uh, atmospheric CO2 or what stabilization target should we aim for? And some people say, oh, 350 ppm or 455.50. Other people say two degrees and have different targets. And I said, oh, I don't think we should have a stabilization target. We should have an emissions target. And they said, well, well okay, what should the emissions target be? And I said, zero. And they kind of laughed at me. And I said, I said, look, if you talk about mugging little old ladies, you don't say what's the right, you know, what's the right stabilization target for rate of mugging little old ladies. You say, well, what's our goal is to get to no little old ladies mugged, zero. And you recognize you might not get all the way there, but that's what you're aiming for. And I, I actually think that the climate problem is not going to get solved by some economic optimization model of balancing the social cost of carbon and having the tax at the right rate and ramping it out in some kind of sensible way. that, that I think the only way it's really going to happen is if there's kind of a change in the social norms. And I think we've seen this, you know, we're seeing this now with marijuana and becoming legal in, in a number of states and gay marriage now. And things that 20 years ago, you know, there was just a thing in the New York Times, you know, a ring advertisement in the back and it was two gay guys and they were selling rings. You would never have seen that when I was growing up. And, you know, indoor smoking, nobody would, you wouldn't think right now to light up a cigarette in my office where 30 years ago that would be normal. And then if you go back further, there were things more dramatic like slavery where, uh, you know, just, you know, things that were socially acceptable became unacceptable. And, you know, I have a tailpipe coming out of my car. But if all of my friends drove electric cars, I would be embarrassed to kind of be the only person I knew with a tailpipe driving around. And and I think we could get to the point where if somebody wants to build a power plant, they say, oh, well, where do you want to dump the waste from that power plant? What are you going to do with the waste? Oh, we're going to just dump it in the sky. You know, people that people would go like, "What? Do you, what do you mean? You can't do that. You have to come up, show me some kind of power plant that, that you know doesn't use the sky as a waste dump." And so I think, and I, I think the average person can understand that dumping using the sky as a waste dump isn't going to work for the long term. And and I think all of this kind of jargon of cap and trade and carbon tax and all of 
this kind of it's too wonky for the average person to get behind and i think the average person can get behind not using the sky as a waste dump and so i think that i think that that's the only way i can understand how this problem is going to be solved if we change the cultural norms is that going to be easy? It sounds difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah. It's a, well, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, so yeah. So I would say it's. I would say to me, um, I think it's the only way it's it could happen. Realist, realistically, in quotes, there. Uh, but you know, I don't want to. You know, I, my, I'm sort of a. I'm kind of like the uh, happy pessimist. I'm basically a happy person, but I think we're kind of going to hell in a handbasket. And so I know it's not my expectation that this is going to happen, but uh, it's the only viable path that I can see forward. That that if it basically becomes socially unacceptable to use the atmosphere as a waste dump. Now you've taken a, a different trajectory than most climate scientists that I've seen. Uh, one. You seem to be fairly outspoken. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, 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 I have a hard time keeping quiet. <laughs> Which is a good thing. <laughs> uh, but secondly, uh, you seem to have moved away from trying to influence policymakers as much uh, and more about just talking to um, different public audiences about this issue. Yeah, as I mentioned in, I forget, it was 2005 or so, talking to these congressional congressmen. And that was sort of at that time, what I wanted to do is try, let me try to get good information into the policy process. But, uh, I guess you don't have to spend that much time around Washington to start getting cynical. And, uh, there was, um, once when I was in Washington, I said, Oh, would it help? If we got some kind of intern or something in every congressperson's and every senator's office who could advise them on clean energy technologies and so that there would be good information about how to do energy systems. You system hear this from numerous scientific societies as yeah. a way forward. And, and what people in Washington told me is that the congressmen and senators would look at that as a waste of space, that they don't have that much office space. And then if you gave them somebody that would help them raise campaign funds – and get reelected, that that they would jump at that opportunity. But somebody who's just an expert on energy, clean energy systems, that that's just wasted space. And what people said is that the senators and congressmen are extremely rational. It's just their incentive structure is different from what we would like it to be. Their incent, they're not, they don't have incentives to make good policies. They have incentives to get money from wealthy people and companies and get reelected and perhaps feather their own nests while they do it. And so so then I thought, well, if their incentive is to just to get reelected, really you have to it's the hearts and minds of the average person that you have to reach that 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 you have to make it so that if they vote the wrong way that they'll lose the election and just dealing with it. Uh, you know, so it's really cap getting to the average person and affecting this sort of so change in social norms rather th than trying to get information into the policy realm. And you already said you're a happy pessimist. Uh, you've made this switch towards talking to, uh, to a broader general audience for a number of years now. Do you feel like you're making progress? I think some uh, is. I think this. I I've seen other people, you know, present this idea that the t long term target is is zero emissions has been showing up more. I I, I noticed other people starting even using my waste waste dump language, uh, which I'm always happy whenever somebody else is ta talks about using the sky as a waste dump and and so. I, you know, I mean, it's every, we're all little human beings. You know, we're all grains of sand in this giant sand pile and, and have all limited effect, you know, and so we each have some little microscopic effect on the overall thing. But, you know, I feel, still feel like a little gnat on the beast or something, but, but I feel like I'm at least, I don't know, poking the beast a little bit. And if you don't follow Ken at K Caldera on Twitter is an interesting follow because you you aren't shy in in sort of uh, engaging people 
that may have alternative viewpoints. That doesn't mean you're like engaging the deniers, but you do engage people that have alternative viewpoints in you. Yeah. And I mean, there's two things there. One is I try not to get on fights on Twitter. Twitter's a bad place to get in fights, I've discovered. But but I do engage people. Um, the other thing I do, which I've been advised not to do, is sort of blur this thing between my professional life and my personal life. And so I'll be talking about climate, but then I'll talk about Edward Snowden or Dick Cheney or something also. And so uh, but in, one of the things I do in my scientific published papers, I try to be as neutral and objective as I can. And I think it's fine for values and politics to drive what questions you ask, but that then the answer should be as objective and neutral as you can be. But then I'm also fine to take those answers and then use them to try to affect social change. So there's, but there is like one point in the middle where I'm trying to be as objective as I can possibly be. And a lot of scientists say, well, look, if you're sort of explicitly value-driven on the way in and you're sort of value-driven on the way out in that middle, you know, why will people think your values aren't driving what you're doing in, in the science part of it where you're supposed to be objective? And, and uh, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I can't control what people think. I just know what I try to do. And that I'm, in fact, I'm often in my papers trying to get rid of policy and value stuff. And sometimes editors are saying, well, what are the policy implications of this? And I'm like, I don't want to go there in the paper because this is supposed to be science. So, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a lot of this is fuzzy and I'm probably not dealing with everything suboptimally. Well, that's why I think you're an interesting follow. Suboptimal can be fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a recent one. I don't know how timely you want to be, but there's a thing about um, this guy. It was in a front page article in the New York Willie Times. Willie Soon. Yeah. About, uh, you know, he got more or less $200,000 a year from the fossil fuel industry. And I talked to Willie Soon about a, about a decade ago. And my sense was that he was a bad scientist believed lots of false false things, but that he was basically sincere. And I, I see human psychology as, you know, I think you start saying crazy things that CO2 has nothing to do with global warming. Fossil fuel companies love that, give you some money, go to Heartland Institute, they all clap and applaud, and that's positive feedback. And so, look, I say these crazy things and people clap and applaud, I'm going to say crazy things again. And all the time being sincere and being, and so, you know, that, and so I don't deny the dynamic that, that there can be influence from fossil fuel money, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad person. It might mean a weak person. It might mean all kinds of things. But I think that people, uh, you know, I think sometimes there's a, an assumption that people are bad people and and i guess i've i've now interacted with edward teller and i've come across other people who i thought were epitomes of evil and then you you talk to them and you find out well they want to help the world and this and that and they believe things that i don't believe but and and maybe they've done some bad things in their life too i don't want to defend edward teller for everything he's done but at least in meeting them, I feel like, look, this is an, uh, you know, somebody who's wants to do good. He just believes bad things. I, I may make an exception for Dick Cheney, though. I think that's still an incredible optimistic viewpoint from a happy pessimist, self-described yeah. happy Yeah, no, I, I give people the benefit of the doubt and, uh, and think that they're genuine. I, every time, once in a while, you do run across somebody who's just pathological, though, I admit. And Dick Cheney is the example. As, so I actually want to track back to the science. Like we know, um, we've heard for years now that the the science is fairly settled on on uh, the relationship between carbon dioxide and um, anthropomorphized climate change. But uh, I'm really curious what the open scientific questions are around climate, uh, and where where are the interesting points that are really driving some of the the research agendas now. I've seen a change in what climate science is doing over the last few decades. And I think up until a couple of decades ago, climate science was mostly about predicting what was going to happen in the future. And, you know, how much is Earth going to warm with this 
certain with different CO2 levels and so on. And the the core basics of climate science were pretty much established by the late 1960s. And by the late 1970s, the core of climate science was pretty well established. And my feeling is that for the last 35 or so years, we've been more or less filling in details. And there really haven't, maybe we've learned more about the carbon cycle and things, but there haven't been really fundamental first order conceptual breakthroughs. And when a science gets mature, that means that the easy problems have already been answered. And I think the the problems that are left are now getting hard. And they're getting hard because things like clouds, I mean, if you look outside and you see these fluffy things that have all strange shapes and different spatial scales, you know, and they're all over the world, and how do you know exactly how they're going to respond? And, 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 and so... I think the pace of climate change is now faster than the pace of advance of climate change science. And so I think we've gone from a transition from where we were predicting what was going to happen to things are happening and now we're trying to explain it. So here we're in California, we're in like the biggest drought historic uh, drought of yeah. on record. And the challenge to climate science is, can you explain why we're having this drought? And, 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 or, or, you know, a big iceberg calves off of Antarctica. Was that just natural or was that due to climate change? And so I think that climate change is going through a shift where we're going from predicting what's going to happen to trying to explain why that thing that just happened happened. So, somebody observes methane coming out of the Arctic. Is that due to global warming or was that always there? And so this, it seems to me that these are the kind of central questions that are now facing climate science. Those almost, some of those questions that you pose almost seem unanswerable by science. How are you going to answer some of these things with our limited um, ability to track through time some of these these changes and the myriad of conditions that seem to um, influence this. Yeah. I mean, this, these are tough, and that's why uh, they're not easily done. I mean, some of it is done through modeling. A lot of what I do is modeling. And if you put the best physics you know into a climate model, and that predicts the icebergs calving off or methane coming out or severe droughts, then you have and, – and then that doesn't happen. If you don't put carbon dioxide into the model, then – then you can think it's it's climate change. But one of the problems is there's so much natural variability of weather systems and climate that you don't know, you know, did this thing happen just by chance? I mean, it's sort of like if you have the loaded dice and, you know, it comes up 12 and then did it come up 12 because it was loaded or or because – uh, right, you know, that's okay. the way it is, and 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 you know, and so there's. I don't want to get too technical, but there's different ways of saying, well, what what's the relative influence of just the randomness of the dice versus the loading of the dice? But but I mean, but the other thing, it is really about also prediction. Why do you care to know whether the, this California drought is is due to climate change or not? Because if if it's just random fluctuation, well then. It's just a thousand and thousand year drought and and there's no reason to expect it's going to come back you know in a decade or 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 five decades. but if it's really part of climate change and this is we're entering the new regime and it's just going to be a desiccated california that's that's a different story. Is it a different story? I wonder because like uh, to me it, somebody that lives here in California. The story is the same for for me as an average individual. Like I'm in a drought that has no predictable end in sight. Yeah, but I mean, the question is, if it does end in two or three years, and then and you have no expectation it come will come back. But if this is the new normal, that's a different thing. Another one of the really interesting things to me about this drought, for people who are not familiar with California, California's rainy season is typically the winter, and it's by Californian standards, gray and chilly and yeah, it rainy. gets down to like the mid fifties. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, for for the you know, for, uh, we get. I think we lost all of our East Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't we can't get many tears, right? But 
you know, for the last few years, the the winters have been, you know, you're out in shirt sleeves and you're eating lunch out in the sun, and it's it, and and what's interesting is that at least for the people in suburbia and urban environments who are isolated from the natural world, the, I think people, if this is global warming, people like it. And the thing that they don't, the th- thing that's bad about it is there's the reservoirs are running dry and there might not be water to, you know, behind the whole California's infrastructure. And it might have, you know, dramatic implications for both the natural forests and so on here and the, you know, and agriculture and everything else. But just in terms of like going out to lunch, I think everybody's happy. And it's it's interesting that this made me think for the first time that, well, there might be parts of climate change that people like. Oh, that's, a, that's interesting. That maybe like if you live in Canada, you you have a whole new outlet with the Arctic sea ice melting for, for trade. Right. Well, Ships I right, going the, through the Arctic sea. You're right. The fossil fuel companies seem to be liking the melting of the Arctic. So, right. So, Right. So the idea with, you know, people sometimes talk about with geoengineering, there's winners and losers, but it's also looks like with climate change, there'll be winners and losers too. I want to tack over to the ocean for a second. I've been under the impression for a long period of time that the ocean is still a source of, of answerable uh, science questions that, um, that we haven't reached that level of maturity that we have with some of the atmospheric work that you implied with. Is is that actually true? Do we still have a long way to go in our understanding of um, ocean chemistry, ocean, uh, even ocean acidification, which is a term that you helped coin? I think the ocean chemistry is reasonably well understood and some aspects of ocean circulation are reasonably well understood. I think What's really not well understood is ocean biology and how it's going to respond to all of these changes. There's, um, you know, a lot of the ocean is basically unexplored. I was just speaking with somebody last night who's studying squid uh, off of Baja, California, and he was saying that, you know, uh, that they can see with sonar that every, you know, couple of hundred meters there's like another layer of some kind of creatures living there and they have no idea what they are. And the fishermen know that certain times of year you can fish at a certain depth and capture certain things, but you know, they have no idea of like how these ecosystems are working or what's living there. And, and, and then, so we don't even know what's in the ocean and then how is that all going to respond to global warming, changes in ocean circulation, ocean acidification. It's a big uh, mystery, I would say. Is there much effort being put into that right now? Like you can feel budgets constricting around around this topical area generally. And I wonder if that's one of the first things to get squeezed out because it must be expensive to do what you're talking about. Yeah, it's expensive. And not only that, but there are no congressmen living on the ocean. You know, congressional districts are land. And, 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 you know, we, and so there's not a huge outpouring of demand like, oh, you have to, you know, put more money into understanding the oceans. I mean, it seems to me that the amount of money in general put into understanding how the earth system works, if you, you know, compare it to like how much is put into developing a new missile system or something like that. It's the the environmental science is like a drop in the bucket. I want to circle back to what we started talking about, which is this report, which had one of the chief outcomes of the geoengineering reports, as you mentioned, was recommendations on on what to ex- explore further with funding and, and what not to. And there seemed to be a conclusion of there needs to be more funding research done on carbon sequestration versus the the albedo, but I want to even zoom back farther. Uh, if you had um, sort of the wherewithal to say where where does money really need to flow um, in terms of the science around this, uh, where does that where does that need to end up? I mean, many of my colleagues aren't going to like what I'm going to say here because I've actually come to think that the most important thing is to help research that will help people to make better decisions. I don't, I mean, Kahneman had this book, Thinking Fast and Slow. There's other work that shows how irrational people are in their decision making. And, uh, you know, and really, I think there's already enough science to know what we need to do. We need to transform our energy systems. 
into systems that don't keep dumping their CO2 into the atmosphere. And I mean, I like the science. I want to do the science. It's fun. It's interesting. It's important. But there's already enough science to know what we need to do, and we're not doing it. And I think it's basically the prisoner's dilemma or tragedy of the commons type problem that, that, you know, you know, if I'm, if I want to cook some meat and I'm somewhere and I have a lump of coal, no matter how hot the world is, it's worth me burning this lump of coal to cook my dinner. And if everybody does that, we all end up in a worse state. And so, you know, how do you get so people have to sacrifice a little bit of their short-term self-interest to help the world be a better place for the long term. And you know, how do you get people to do that, I think, is the most important research that can be done. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Ken Caldera, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. What do you think of geoengineering now that you heard Ken talk about it so lovingly for an hour? Sure. Problem solved. <laughs> I'm not worrying about climate change anymore. All we need to do is shoot up the atmosphere with a bunch of particles. Or we just need to set off a volcano somewhere. Well, same thing, right? Except maybe the volcano has a few extra particles that we don't want in there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I do think it's remarkable that uh, that there is a potential solution out there. And, I, and what, what's wonderful is that it, it, it kind of echoes some of my favorite science stories, which start out with, well, you know, I wanted to prove that this wasn't the case. <laughs> you know, that's how the best science works. And lo and behold, his simulation after simulation kept showing that, hey, you know what, actually, this might work. And there's even some indication that, for example, like, you know, I read about this one simulation that they did, where you know, he was initially worried that, you know, you block out part of the sun or you reflect part of the sun back out, you know, this is going to have a huge influence on the biosphere, on the on plant growth. And yet in one of his models, you know, it showed that actually the increase in temperature has a bigger effect. So net effect of blocking out a bit of the sun is actually better for the plants. I still think it's just incredibly unlikely that we're going to see a geoengineering idea. But I did find it fascinating hearing the historical take going back to some of those conversations he had going back to Lawrence Livermore National Labs. I think there's always going to be this discussion ongoing. We should do something like carbon sequestration and weather rocks and put them in the ocean and they'll capture CO2 or we should just dump a bunch of particles in the air and it'll block out the sun. But I just can't imagine be they're ever going to become policy. I just, you know, a couple of major natural natural disasters that are attributable to global warming, I think, and we're going to start changing our minds. I mean, we're going to have some major problems to fix. And I think when that happens, you know, I think he's right that it's going to be a lot harder to get people to change their daily habits than to buy into a potential solution, even if it's so outlandish. What do you think about him pushing the idea of zero emissions. That's the one I had the hardest problem with. Like, could I actually do zero emissions in my life? Again, I, you know, I think that in some ways that's even more ambitious than talking about just, you know, doing one of these big geoengineering projects. Maybe we just need to push the earth farther away from the sun so we can just <laughs> keep doing the same things. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a scary situation, but I do feel, you know, oddly hopeful after this interview because I feel like, well, at least there's a potential solution out there. I, it is a potential solution. I have to say I'm, walked, I'm walking away more confident than ever that climate science is, is not only settled, but that we should be putting research dollars in, in areas that uh, motivate us to make different decisions in our life. It is, it's a pretty amazing statement. And I'm sure there are even going to be climate scientists who will argue with you on that point, maybe even not the, the idea that the climate is changing, but rather still that there's a lot of value in understanding how it's going to change. And you know, what are the effects that are causing it really, um, ultimately. Uh, but I, I do think that there is, it's time to act. 
So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, or you can go to inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast, and you can send comments, feedback, future guest ideas, geoengineering plans, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquire Minds listeners a free audiobook, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Inquiring Minds is produced by NAP fan Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis at Indre Vis on Twitter. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.